0: this week on Writers Inc.
1: I used to be able to write very quickly, now that's like, that is a that is a skill set I have lost. Um, so I would never write in longhand, it's much too slow. And I also find it impossible to um, thumb type on the phone. I'm like an old school touch typing kind of person and I'm using touch typing, which is also a thing that is gone. It's gone. They don't teach that anymore. And, and there's no such thing as typing, it's keyboarding. So um, I, am, I am, again, marking myself as a pre-internet era human being.
0: Whether you are traditionally published or indie, writing a good book is only the first step in becoming a successful author. The days of just turning a manuscript into your editor and walking away are gone. If you want to succeed in today's publishing world, you need to understand every aspect of the business. Editing, formatting, marketing, contracts. It all starts with a good book. Then the real work begins. Join international best-selling author J.D. Barker and indie powerhouse Jay Thorne as they gain unique insight and valuable advice from the most prolific and accomplished authors in the business. The publishing world is changing, adapting. Do you have what it takes to become a full-time writer? If you're willing to do the work, we'll give you the tools. Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writer's Inn. Jay, where's your beard?
2: Uh, yeah. Hey. I, yeah, I'm, uh, I, I have less beard, but I'm not beardless. <laughs> so here, here's the best part we tease my wife all the time because she. Doesn't notice anything. She does like she doesn't observe anything. She's just one of those people. She kind of like goes through her day and she she doesn't see things. So she walks in with my daughter. and I'm like, hey, what's up? And she looks at me. And she's like, hi. Meanwhile, I got five inches cut off the back and five inches cut off the front of my beard. And she didn't notice anything.
3: I didn't so, even notice your hair was shorter. Yeah. I didn't
4: didn't notice either of those things. So I guess I'm in the same camp as your wife. Gee, thanks guys. I'm I'm looking at the plant and just realized it's still alive.
3: What's funny is that's how my beard started was. I just wanted to see how long it would take for cat to say something. So I just started growing it. And then after like eight months, she said something. And I was like, well, I've gotten this far. I'm not getting rid of it. (laughs) So now it's like down halfway down my freaking body now. So it's it's
4: nice to know one of you guys discovered scissors and realized you can actually cut that stuff at some point. (laughs) I got to have hair somewhere. (laughs) all right but okay
2: Okay. (laughs) (laughs) welcome to the beard and body hair podcast Uh, (laughs) let's shift to publishing jd what have you what are you hearing on the wire uh related to the publishing industry these days
4: um well actually some pretty big news the justice department just jumped in and sued penguin random house to block the merger with um simon and schuster which is uh, i didn't see that coming because they've let all these other ones go through so somebody's drawing a line in the sand there um, I don't know how that's going to play out, but you know, pretty much, if, if the Justice Department says no, it's it's pretty difficult to get around that. Um, I, I don't have anything beyond that. I just saw the headline.
2: Yeah, same here. I, I don't uh, I don't know the legalities of the situation, but uh, it it sounded like it the deal is pretty much going to be off. But I, I don't know. Like, I don't know if they can file a something or other, and, <laughs> like or contest that. But it well, doesn't look good. I mean, it, honestly,
4: as an author, it's, it's better for us that they don't do this. I mean, every time I you know, I send a book off to my agent, the list of people she can send it to at the publishing side is getting shorter and shorter and shorter, you know, with, with all these mergers. So I, I, I hope they, they stop it at this point and they don't allow any more of these because we're down to what, big, big four, big five? I, I don't even know anymore. Um, but yeah, I feel bad for the, the authors and the, the people that are working at, at Simon and Schuster at this point because now they're in limbo. They don't really know what's happening. Like you know, jobs are, are kind of hanging in the air. Authors don't know what's happening with their back catalog. You know, their editors could be gone, might not be now. You know, so like all those kind of things. And who knows what that's doing to the budget that's supposed to appear behind all of those books. So that's got to be a nightmare. But we'll see how it plays out.
2: Yeah, little little side note too. If uh, if listeners have not. Or don't read uh, Kristen's blog, Kristen Nelson's blog. You definitely should. Uh, it's one of the best ones on the, in the industry. She's been doing it for a long time. And uh, she talks a little bit, it wasn't the, the most recent post, but, but a recent post. She talked about how the job of an agent is getting that much harder. And I think situations like these are, are contributing to that.
4: Yeah. And in all honesty, I mean, I'm one of her authors and, you know, I'm part of the problem too, because, you know, every time she sends me a deal, I'm looking at that deal going, well, if I do this on the indie side, I'm going to, you know, make X or, you know, this is what I have to do to make it happen on my own. And, you know, that, that decision, that wasn't even a factor 10, 15 years ago. And now all of a sudden it's a huge part of, of every one of these, Um, you know, so agents are out there busting their butt to try and get book deals. And, you know, us authors, authors were not necessarily taking them.
3: Yeah, that's that's where it gets kind of interesting to me too is 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 this sort of thing going to be where a lot of where the bigger the more successful authors start doing exactly what you're saying where they're like, "Well, why don't I just take this indie and do it myself?" <laughs> like I th- I think that, that that's going to be pretty interesting.
4: Well, one of the things she touches I, I believe it's in that blog post if not it's in one of her, her other recent ones but the, the deals themselves have shifted and changed quite a bit um you know where you used to get a, a sizable advance you know straight off the bat usually it was uh, you know this this dollar amount on signature this dollar amount on publication um, you know, sometimes it would be a couple months after publication. But, you know, there were only one or two advances typically tied to a book. Now they're breaking it up. You know, you might get four or five different advances, you know, based on different, you know, events. You know, so, you know, one on signature, another one on publication, another one 12 months, another one based on this, another one based on that. And, and all of that makes it less attractive as a an, an offer. You know, like why, why go out there and do that and, and spread it out that much? So I don't know.
2: Yeah, our old friend and, uh, and colleague Jim Kukral, I remember him ranting on the Selmer book show years ago. Uh, and and they were uh, him and Brian were talking about who was going to be the first author to kind of break ranks with with and, and sort of go indie full on. And uh, sort of without a lot of fanfare, Dean Koontz kind of did that. And I, and I'm wondering if if now other authors like like UJD Hybrid or or people who are have been traditionally published are now looking at Dean Koontz and thinking, like, man, that guy, you know that guy's got a deal. Maybe that's something I need to consider.
4: Every, I, I actually emailed him again yesterday because I just finished his latest book and I, I'm constantly bugging him to come on this show because I really want him to talk about all this um, but you know he's kind of at that stage in his career where he, he's just happy just sitting on his desk just churning out novel after novel um, but you know publishing industry aside like he, he, just, he told me he's, he's already like three books in so like the book that's coming out next year he's already turned in like two or three other ones since then um, and I really want him to just come on and talk about his process um, just because he's definitely got that dialed in um, but we'll, we'll see, but yeah, he's, he's definitely the first big name to, to come out there and, and do that. I'm sure we're going to see other ones, you know, follow suit. Um, you know, Amazon in general, the marketing machine that they've got behind them, the you know the algorithms, the, the ability to just kind of control the entire marketplace, um, you know, that's resting on their shoulders. And honestly, that's something I, I wouldn't be surprised if the Justice Department focuses on, you know, sometime relatively soon too, because that's you know as great as it is, you know, to be Amazon and to be an Amazon author, that's you know part of the problem on the the other side. That's, that's one of the things that's hurting these other publishers: the fact that they do have all of that control. If you look at any particular you know top whatever list on Amazon. You know the top names are, are always Amazon authors. That's you know that's that's not an accident.
2: Yeah, for sure. So uh, keep keep uh, stay tuned. I guess we'll see what if that if that merger goes through, we'll see what kind of ripple effect it has on on mostly the trad pub industry, and also if uh, other other big time authors are going to start making the leap and and taking the indie route themselves. Uh, Zach,
3: you got something new you're going to tell us about, right? Yeah, so uh, pretty excited. I've been working on this now for, I guess, a couple of months, Um, but I have a new podcast launching uh, tomorrow, actually, Tuesday, November 9th, uh, 2021, The Creator Dad Podcast. So I'm pretty excited about it. Um, Both you guys, Jay and I have actually recorded, and then JD, I've got you scheduled um but yeah I've got this is the first podcast I've done without Jay so that's, so that'll be that that's been really interesting but uh yeah I just uh basically it's conversations with uh creatives who are both some are full-time some aren't um, but you know most of them have some sort of entrepreneurial mindset but uh it's conversations with the creatives who are also and uh it's been a lot of fun it's you know i'm used to just talking to writers but in this podcast i'm getting to talk to uh writers musicians graphic artists tattoo artists um chefs i have a voice actor coming on like all and it's just it's to learn about their process stuff but also like what it's like being a parent and making time for these types of things and all that. So, um, it's been, it's super fun. Uh, my first episode, like I said, comes out tomorrow with uh, Jeff Elkins, who I figured was a really good uh, person to have since he has five kids and is a writer and has a company and has a full-time job and all that. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm excited. It'll be on all the podcast platforms and you can also listen to it at creator dad.life.
2: Nice, man. I'm excited to to hear the episodes, and I know that you've been banking uh, episodes in preparation for the launch. So, in in the few that you've done so far, what's what's surprised you the most, or what's been, what's come up in conversation that you didn't really anticipate?
3: Um, that's a really that's a really good question. I mean, it's it, it, like uh, thinking about you, you know you and Tyler, two people who I'm very familiar with and who are good friends, um, and I feel like by having especially by having the parenting aspect like when you and i talked i mean there was stuff about like being kids and stuff that we didn't know about each other that we talked about and um so i think especially having the parenting aspect and talking about that um ha- has definitely brought some stuff up that i just don't hear you know you jeff tyler like these people i hear on podcasts all the time but we really got to talk about some things that i that aren't normally talked about on podcasts. And so, and and then like I said, talking to creatives who aren't writers um, and, and hearing what their processes and stuff are like is, is really fascinating, so. Well, cool, man.
2: Uh, we'll have the link in the show notes. Good luck on the launch and uh, hopefully many more episodes to come. So, any anything else before we take care of some business?
4: I think we're all good. I got fun stuff happening with my, my neighbor. My daughter got her first big girl bed today. All, all kinds of craziness happening over here, but. I, I want to get into this podcast. This is a, a really good one.
2: Nice. All right. Well, let's, uh, before we bring on the guests, let's give a nice warm shout out to our wonderful sponsors over there at Kobo Writing Life. Uh, as you guys know, if you're looking to take a book wide, you got to go through Kobo Writing Life. You get to, uh, Uh, publish in any country you choose, you set your price, you keep all your rights, and you can do that without being exclusive to Kobo. So if you are interested and want to get started with that, you can set up your free account at kobowritinglife.com. also want to give a warm shout out to all of our patrons over at patreon.com. If you would like to become part of our monthly Q&A uh, episode by submitting questions that we will answer on the air, you can do that by going to patreon.com slash podcast. And now, J.D., it's time for our guest. All right, so we've
4: got Pamela Paul. Uh, she's the editor at the New York Times Book Review. Um, she basically oversees all the coverage at the New York Times with regard to books, um, which is a, a cool job in itself. Um, she also hosts a book review podcast for the Times, which you know apparently she didn't have enough work, so she decided to add a job number two. And she's written a, a number of books. I think this is number seven or eight for her, but her, her latest book is called "A Hundred Things We've Lost to the Internet," um, which is a really really fun read. I, I encourage everybody to run out there and pick this one up. It just came out October 26th.
2: Um, so here she is Pamela Paul. Can I send you a playlist after the interview? Would that be really thoughtful of me? Sure. <laughs> or a mixtape, maybe? <laughs> <laughs> yes,
1: I, I bring it back, please. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I have a feeling we're, we're pretty much the same age. So uh, I would love to know uh, how many CDs you had and how did you organize them?
1: You know, I... I had a fair amount of CDs, but I also had a pretty good number of cassettes that I held onto even after CDs. And of course vinyl. Um, And I, have never been organized with my media in any way. I I hate to say, people think that I must have like an alphabetized, color coded, (laughs) very coordinated shelf of books. And I do not, and the same held for my music back when I actually had um, a good collection of music. You know what I still have? I still have, and if you're from the tri-state area, this will be especially meaningful. I still have a cassette that was duped off a recording from the karaoke stand at Great Adventure. In New Jersey, Um, if you remember this, like that, before there were karaoke bars everywhere, they had a kind of karaoke um, venue at Great Adventure, which is now Six Flags Great Adventure, and you could go in there and sing with your friends and come out with an actual cassette. I don't have the original; I have the duped one with my like best friend's handwriting labeling it as like you know this is us doing Uptown Girl um, (laughs) by Billy Joel. I still have that, but it's not organized.
2: (laughs) Have you played that for your friends recently?
1: You know, I I have played it for my kids. Um, They are deeply embarrassed for me (laughs) on my behalf.
2: I'm embarrassed to say that I was living in northern New Jersey in the early 90s, early to mid 90s. And I remember the karaoke booth and I remember wincing every time I walked past it.
1: See, I know and among my people, but see, you were obviously too cool for that karaoke stand. I was not.
3: <laughs> well, all of
2: this, uh, if listeners are wondering why we' why we're getting nostalgic here, you have a great new book out. Why don't you uh, why don't you tell us uh, a little bit about the bo- the title and a little bit about the book and we can uh, talk some more o- about it.
1: So the book is called 100 Things We've Lost to the Internet, and it it is exactly that. It's 100 short chapters, um, a mini essay, if you will, some longer than others, about things that the Internet has either killed off entirely or transformed so radically as to be unrecognizable from its former incarnation. So, you know, some of these things are ephemeral um, or abstract. And some of them are really deeply specific, like the mixtape that you alluded to earlier. I mean, who makes the mixtape? And there's just, it's just not the same. I guess you could Create like a Spotify playlist and send it to someone. It's just not the same, it's right? Not right. <laughs> there was a lot of work that went into you know making a mixtape, and 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 it was really precise. You know, you had to like end the recording, especially when you were working from records. Remember, you would like wait for the needle, and you'd be like, "Okay, it's right in the groove, and now record." Um, and you would have to often you know redo it just to to get it exactly right. I remember having to sit by um, and listen on the radio, and if a song came on that you didn't own, but you wanted to record it, you know, like sitting there ready with the, the tape recorder. Um, so it's things like that. Um, it's things like benign neglect and being late. Well, okay, those things still exist, but it's really not the same as it once was. And then it's very specific things like the phone in the kitchen, right? Now, you might still have a phone in your kitchen if you have a landline, but it is not like the essential portal to your house that it once was like if you wanted to get inside someone's house from outside in the olden days the pre-internet days you either had to walk in the front door or the back door um, or climb in through a window or you would call the landline and generally like there was a phone in the kitchen um, even if there were no um, phones anywhere else and that meant that everyone sort of had to go through like family central in order to reach you if you were a kid. I mean anyone could, you know, pick up on another line if you had on another phone if you had it on another receiver and listen in. Like it was just a way to know what was going on in the house. And that's kind of gone. Um, so that's what the book is. Um, I could talk a little bit about why I did this and compiled <laughs> this little catalog. Um, that might be another question.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I uh I, I was annoying my wife because I, I kept calling her into the room I'm like listen to this and I would read her a passage from your book and it's funny you mentioned phones because I pulled this one up. Uh, th- this had me in stitches. Uh, Get off the phone your sister would scream from upstairs. You can hang up now you called out to your dad. Mom he won't hang up in the kitchen. I can hear you breathing. <laughs> I don't know how many times I said that as a teenager.
1: And it's like, it's things that would never occur to kids, you know, nowadays, it would never occur to them that someone else might pick up their phone, but also they're not really calling each other. It's, Mm -hmm. it's weird. It's like the phone call for, you know, generation Z, um, even for millennials is like this weird verboten state, like between FaceTime and texting that like, no one, no one wants to go there. It's like, it, it definitely marks you as older
2: than, you know, say, 40 or 45. Yeah, no doubt there. Uh, yeah, I, I want to hear more about how the book came to be, because I know that you started this pre-pandemic, and, and clearly the pandemic had to have had some influence on, on the essays in some phase of the writing. So can you talk a little bit about where the project came from and, and how you brought it to fruition?
1: Sure. Um, well, it's actually, it's two big, big things. So I did come up with the idea pre-pandemic and the pandemic definitely changed both my writing process um, and in very concrete ways um, and also changed the sort of approach to the subject. So I'll start with the how I came up with the idea, which uh, it, it started off with an op-ed now called a guest essay that I wrote for the New York Times on the end of boredom. And my writing is at this point, because I have a full time day job as the editor of the New York Times Book Review and overseeing books coverage in general, it's kind of a busy job. And so I don't have a lot of time to write. And so I came to the conclusion after having this job for a number of years that one, I'm not happy if I'm not writing, but that two, I have no time. So it has to be writing I really, really want to do, something I feel strongly about. And the end of boredom was something I do feel strongly about because uh, I. I spent a lot of time as a kid being bored and I think that was good for me. I I know I sound like an old geezer and I am secretly a grumpy old man inside but I like I think there's a really strong value to having nothing to do. And not only having nothing to do, but not being able really to do anything about it outside doing something inside your own mind or your own body. Meaning um, if you're in the shower, it's pretty boring after a while. We've been in the shower before. Um, and so your mind will wander like you, you're you doing, you're going through the same moves you usually too, washing your body. And that's when you often have your most interesting thoughts. It's because it's kind of boring being in there um, washing yourself day after day. Um, and so I think that the fact that that we all have these devices at our fingertips that offer every single possible option for entertainment, information, diversion, um, sort of an anti-boredom device has changed the way we handle that kind of downtime. So I wrote this op-ed and then I realized there was a lot more in this and I was having lunch with my editor and trying to sort of figure out, well, how do I take this and, and and make it into a book? And I don't want to just keep writing op-eds about sort of all these things that um, trouble me about our current moment. Um, and the idea was really to channel them all into a book that would describe a sort of somehow capture the things that, the things I find wrong with our world, <laughs> um, you know, are very big. Um, but, but, but. Obviously, I wasn't going to do quite that. Um, And when I first started and and sat down to write, first I made a list of everything that the internet had sort of disappeared. Um, And then I, as I was writing it, I realized I was writing really three things for each of those items what's gone? How did it, how did we lose it? Like, how did this happen? What was the process? How did the internet take over? How did it transform? And then thirdly, like, what does it mean for our future? And um, and the third thing would get me very angry and incensed and, you know, kind of raising my fist at, at the at the sky or shaking my fist at the sky. And then the second thing, the like how we got there, um, I realized we all kind of know, you know, we've been there. And it was really the thing that got lost that I felt like was getting lost in the conversation. It was like, remember what it was like before. So I stripped out during the writing process, those other two things. I stripped out how did we lose it? And what does it all mean? And why should it make us you know angry, upset, or in some cases relieved and, and, and happy to have moved on? Um, and I focused on let's actually just catalog these things. Because for people that are maybe in your age bracket and my age bracket, like we get it and it, and we hear it and we're like, oh, my God, I forgot about that. Or I remember that. Or yes. And it's kind of nice, um, nostalgic moment to remember, like what these sort of, you know, early Brady Bunch era moments on the phone, for example, were like. Um, and then. For kids who are younger, for for kids these days, um, it's really interesting. Like kids are kind of fascinated with old tech and pre tech. You know, there are things like Dispo, an app where you can simulate what it was like to um, have to develop film, right? <laughs> so it with Dispo, um, which is an app, and again, it's popular with 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 you know teenagers. You have to wait to see what the photos that you took look like. They're trying to simulate This thing that we all had to once do. Remember when you had to take your film to like a Kodak store? And it was a big innovation when like pharmacies started to develop film, right? And then it was like, oh my God. And then you could get it done in 24 hours. And that was considered like insane and an insane advance. Of course, the film itself, the pictures looked terrible. Um, But you had to wait. You couldn't just see instantly. You couldn't. And film was expensive. Like, remember having to buy your Fujifilm, your Kodak film and being like, can I get a 24 or like to, you know, can I afford a 32 or do I have to just like get 24, you know? And, and, um and then it, it, like throwing away a photo was a huge deal because it was so expensive to buy the film and to get it processed. So I thought that for those readers, it'd be kind of interesting to show just how radically things have transformed, you know, it, I'm sure that your parents told you stories about what it was like when they were young and it felt like, you know, just a dark age, but playing stickball in the streets of Brooklyn, like, again, it feels like an old, you know, a long time ago. And that's something that my dad did, but there are not nearly as many equivalents of that for today's generation as there are for, you know, it, so much has changed so quickly that I don't think we've really stopped to catch a breath and to contemplate, like, wait a minute, <laughs> wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. We're so worried about where we're going. We're so worried about what all this means. We're so worried about our future. We forgot to even just sort of like memorialize the very recent past. So that's what the book tries to do.
2: I love it. Yeah. I, I mean, so much of what you're saying is in, in alignment with, with my own thinking and, you know, thinking about my my childhood versus my parents' childhood um, versus my children's childhood—it's an exponential difference in acceleration and technology. You know, my my childhood resembled much more my parents than my child's re- resemble mine, and, and I think that's what you're getting at. And and I think too, when I read through the essays, I, I yeah, there was definitely a little like get off my lawn, you crazy kids. Like there's a little bit of that in there, but I think there's a there's a really fundamental position that you have. Maybe this is my interpretation, but. My takeaway was that just because it's easier might not make it better.
1: Right, right. I mean, it is funny. Like, some things are better. Now, here's a here's a little technology. It's actually not an internet technology, but it was a reminder of how what is obvious maybe to people of our age, but not to young people, is just, like, insane to them. So... We, like many households, have a number of car keys to our car. And one of them does not have an automatic opener. It's like an extra key, right? And I, we had misplaced a couple of them. So we had one that was just the key. And we went and we stuck the key, you know, in the keyhole as one used to do to open up the car door. And my oldest child, who was 16, was stunned <laughs> by this revelation. She's like, wait a minute, you can open a car with a key? Like the house, I mean, it was just like, she it never occurred to her. And it's those kinds of things, those kinds of um, revelations that I tried to enumerate and kind of capture in the book. Um, To answer the other question about how the pandemic changed things. So because I have such limited time to write the book in a very practical sense, um, the pandemic changed things because I write on the train. Uh, I write on the train to my office every day. And that is the way that I compartmentalize my life because, you know, I have to, I just have such a busy work day. So my commute is my writing time and my commute disappeared. <laughs> um, and as we all know, it ha- what happened to every one of us, which is like home and work, if we worked outside the office before the pandemic, it all just blurred into one big blob. So I had to really figure out where and when am I going to write and how am I going to carve this out of my day and differentiate it from my regular job at the times. So that was like challenge number one. The other change was at first I thought it was going to be a hurdle. And then I realized it actually helped because the pandemic made us realize just how essential the internet has become to us. And like, I will be honest, as much as I am a grumpy old man, I recognize the internet has done a lot of great things and we would never have been able, like there, the, the pandemic would have been so much harder in so many ways and profound ways, not just in my sort of like very easy um, first-class problem way of like, you know, being able to do fun things still um, to some extent, but the spread of healthcare, the spread of information, access to, um, uh, you know, to companionship, the way in which people could still see family members when they were far away. I mean, there were there were life-saving things that the internet could do during the pandemic at the same time. So it, it reminded us that like, of the good. And that was good for me um, as a kind of check on my grumpy tendencies and my pessimism. But it also, I think, made it obvious, even more obvious to all of us what we were losing because there is no replacing a lively kindergarten classroom with a real teacher and real books and desks and real kids, you know, holding each other's hands and seeing each other's facial expressions and reading body language—you cannot replace that. We have all learned brutally the hard way with a Zoom class. Um, it's just not the same. So I think it, it it by making our entire lives practically online for the last year and a half. I think some of what I felt like I might need to persuade people of is now I think probably. Pretty clear to a lot of people.
2: What does uh, you you mentioned writing on the train, which is something that's come up a number of times with multiple guests, uh, or or using a commute to get the writing done. Uh, what what are the nuts and bolts of that look like? Do you do you have a a laptop, are you on your phone, are you doing longhand? How how are you getting the writing done?
1: Oh my god. Uh, well, okay. So I have limits to my yearning for old technology. <laughs> no, I am incapable of handwriting any longer. I used to be able to write very quickly. Now that's like, that's a, that is a skill set I have lost. Um, so I would never write in longhand. It's much too slow. And I also find it impossible to, um, thumb type on the phone. I'm like an old school touch typing kind of person and I'm using touch typing, which is also a thing that is gone it's gone they don't teach that anymore and and there's no such thing as typing it's keyboarding so i'm um, I'm am, I am again marking myself as a pre-internet era human being um so I do use a laptop and i you know, I moved out of the city about uh six years ago and it's this is my fourth book and I that I've done since then on the train and the first time uh before I moved I thought, how am I going to do this book with this full-time job? Um, I know it's going to not work. And I thought, oh, I'll I'll write on the train because I had been on the Acela before and you have that really nice big table. You know, you you take the Acela to like Washington from New York. It's a really nice train ride. You could get a lot of work done in the quiet car in the Acela i had never been on a commuter train um, <laughs> to where i live before i did not know that they do not even ha- they don't have tables they no. don't even have like uh, seat back trays uh you just put the laptop on your lap um <laughs> so that was an adjustment i sort of said i would do it before i even knew what it was um that said I find it um it's almost like getting acupuncture or a really good massage or, or meditating if I were able to do that successfully I really get into the flow and the zone there's something um there's something almost conf- free there's something almost freeing in the constraints of having only this little commute time because I get right down to business. Whereas when I used to work full-time from home and write books, um, when I was a full-time writer, I could fill up my day with all kinds of activities. I could be like, I'm going to go clean the toilet. Cause you know, it like, it could use some cleaning. Like I could sit down and write for 10 minutes and then I could get up and be like, I'm going to check on, you know, my kids or I, it, it, there were so many ways in which you could, could persuade yourself that you were writing all day. Of many things. And when you only have a con- 40 minutes at either end of the day, like you are, or at least I am, it, it brings me into like a kind of hyper focus uh, diligence.
2: Do you know what you're going to write before you get on the train, or do you just open the laptop and just go?
1: No, I don't usually know. The way that I write, and, and I kind of alluded to this earlier, is I, I really find that I can I write best when I feel strongly about something or when I have some kind of passion. And that works both for and against me. And I'm sure many listeners who are writers know the experience of like, you're, you're, you're trying to fall asleep and you're like, oh my God, I just have this thing. And you have to get up and you have to dash to the, you know, put it into the computer. And even though I keep now a pad and a, a pen by my bed, so that, because no matter how much I say to myself, like, I'll remember this, I don't need to write it down. I never remember it in the morning unless I write it down. So I either write it down or I dash to the computer. It's when I have that like strong impulse to write. So when I'm working on a book, I will open, um, my laptop and I usually have some kind of structure, you know, I usually have all my chapters laid out or something. And I will think like, what is it that I want or need to write about today and look at, you know, among all the things. And if I'm not feeling particularly passionate, then I'll revise something that I've already written you know so like cuz editing is something i can kind of since it's my day job do in my sleep um and and i am my own meanest and harshest editor so i can edit myself until like the end of time so if i'm not feeling like particularly moved to um you know create something whole cloth then i will you know tweeze at something that i've already written
2: well that's a good transition to uh your day job can you tell us a little bit about what you what you do when you get off the train uh, including the podcast and all the other stuff
1: yeah, so um, so I head up uh, the books desk at The New York Times, um, which has grown and changed since I started at The Times um, about 10 years ago. This is kind of my fourth job into my tenure at the Times. I started off as the part-time children's books editor. Um, Now, I have, unfortunately, nothing to do with the children's books anymore, really. Um, What I do is I oversee three main sections of the desk. One is the weekly book review. It's the one that you might get in your newspaper on Sundays if you are an old-timey person who gets home delivery. Um, And of course, you can get it online, on the app, everywhere else, on social media, et cetera. Second component is overseeing the daily critics, the staff critics for the New York Times, whose reviews run in the daily pages of the weekly. Um, you know, the Sunday, mo- the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday um, issues of The Times and again, online and everywhere else. And the third component is news and features. So it's looking at the publishing industry reported stories um, about what's going on in the business, whether it's retail or printing or distribution or pub- you know mergers or um, anything that's that's happening in the industry from plagiarism, scandals to, um, you know, Shortages to printing delays, whatever that might be, um, and profiles and features, trends that are happening in publishing, new authors, um, a look at an established author, and and actually then a fourth part which you mentioned, which is of course a podcast. We're on the podcast, and it's funny, you know, for a lot of people, like a podcast is a full time job. The podcast at the Times uh, Book Review is is not a full time job. It could be. It would be really nice if I had more time, um, but it's a weekly podcast. It's the oldest and longest running podcast of the New York times. It's celebrating its 15th year. Um, I have never missed a weekly episode, but for three, which we missed at the beginning of the pandemic, just because we were all, I think, you know, just in shell-shocked and uh, trying to figure out how do we replicate a studio. Um, uh, Mine is in my closet. That's where I am right now, sitting here on this podcast, um, and get the required equipment and figure out the right platform and all of that. Um, But so that's every week. And I interview generally two authors and occasionally a critic on the podcast, and we do a roundtable with each podcast either among our critics or among writers and staffers and editors at the book review and elsewhere on the desk about what we're reading or what we're reviewing and then there is a segment in which i talk to one of our two publishing reporters about what's going on in the in the business and um and that's it and that that runs every friday um that drops every friday
2: nice yeah. And, and I, uh, I love interviewing fellow podcasters because the audio is always really good.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's, it's just meta. It's kind of funny. It's, it's, uh, it's like interviewing, um, when you're a journalist interviewing another journalist and it's like, I see what you are doing there. Yeah. I see you. <laughs> I know. I hear you. you know my I hear tricks. you very well.
2: <laughs> awesome. Uh, well, Pamela, I, it's, uh, it's, it's been great talking to you. We'll definitely have links to the new book uh, in the show notes and the podcast and things. But um, I'd like to end with sort of a similar question for all guests. And given your, your position and your experience, I think this is a perfect one for you. Uh, you know, the pandemic, the publishing industry, the, the news industry has changed a lot in the past couple of years. Uh, where do you think it's headed? What does the future look like for, for the, the state of publishing?
1: Well... I truly believe that publishing is never in danger. It always says it's in danger. It's always afraid. Um, I think that's a good thing. It's a good thing to be on your guard. But the fact of the matter is that human beings love stories and no matter how great TV is, and I admit it's really, really great. Um, And I used to say that about movies and movies still are pretty great. Um, But uh, no matter how good other forms of media, whether it's a video game or a TV show, is it telling a story? I think that there is something fundamental about books and the way in which a book can tell a story. And that's because the book is different, truly 100% different for every reader. The book exists as a relationship between the author and the reader such that, and it's, it's so powerful that often what the reader reads in a book is very different from what the writer has written. I'm sure you know every writer has had this experience of like you're out in your book tour and someone will come up and say in a fully persuaded and excited way like I loved your novel. I love the way it was all about retribution, right? And the author will be like it was not about retribution. It was about reconciliation. Like, what is this? How, what did you read? But you know, that's a good thing. That's natural. That's because each reader is reading that book in a different way. So it, you know, when you are watching a movie by contrast, you are getting the story as it is delivered and as it is envisioned by a huge team from costumes that are telling you what the character is wearing to the actor providing the voice and the facial expressions to the cinematographer kind of creating a mood to the director telling you, this is what to focus on. When you are reading a book, you're taking the framework of those words and you're doing all the rest of that work yourself. So you're creating it as you're reading it. And I think that that's why books stay with us. You know, that's why they that's why they're so formative. That's why when people think about their childhood, they often go back to the earliest novels or picture books that they read. It's because those are the stories that I think make us who we are. So I don't worry.
2: All right, Zach, let's start with you. Uh, Writing on a train. Sound familiar?
3: Yeah, it sounds a little familiar. <laughs> that was really funny to hear. I was like, "Oh my gosh, it's, I'm having deja vu now." So especially since we were just on a train a couple of weeks ago, and I got a little bit of writing done. But, uh, but yeah, it was it was awesome. This, I mean, Jay, I, I know. I mean, both of you, I think at this point know these con- these conversations are right at my wheelhouse. And anytime someone brings to the forefront, you know, talking about. Uh, Technology and and obviously technology's done a lot of great things. I mean, we're here because of technology and because of the internet. But I mean, uh, it, you know, there's also some disadvantages too. And I just love when when people bring to the forefront just about how boredom is lost and and how important boredom is. And I see it all the time. Like, I mean, you you look around and people they always are having to consume and they're always having to find some have some sort of content going on, whether they're looking at their phone scrolling through something or they, you know, are putting earbuds in their ear, always having to listen to a podcast or something, you know, they, yeah, we, we don't find enough time to just cultivate silence and to be bored. And it's, it's almost like it's, it's not cool to be bored or something. <laughs> no, we have to just keep consuming, but you know, especially as creatives and as writers, we have to have those moments where it's just quiet and we can, let ideas brew, which is why I'm surprised you didn't joke with her about how I, you know, my shower habits and how I like to take multiple showers a day because that's how my ideas come. But
4: well, i i think um we've kind of become a multitasking generation you know like it it's very difficult at least for me to, to sit down and just do one thing at a time you know like to sit down and just watch television you know put my phone aside and, and everything else or just read a book or just do and you know if, if you go back 15 20 years like that was the norm you know like it was Know, that that was just what you did. So I think our brains have been conditioned to have all of that, which makes it that much more difficult to, to sit down and have that quiet time. And it, you know, it makes me wonder what's you know what's coming next. You know, like we're we're all running at eleven all the time. You know, is the next generation next generation going to be dialed to, to thirteen and just you know constantly buzzing and unable to to sit down for even a second? Um, I, I don't know where it's going. I I, 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 I miss I, I miss mixtapes. You know, she nailed that. Like, I really want that to come back. But I I think Jay, you know, the point that you had brought up, um, you know, if you compare your childhood to your parents' childhood, you know, like that was huge. Like, just thinking about that, like that, those two things weren't that different. Um, But if you sit down and talk to your 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 kids, you know, like their childhood, the way they were raised, is exponentially different. Um, You know, so like that time frame is just getting shorter. It's getting more condensed. The technology is developing faster, and it's it's going quicker and quicker.
2: I think I'm the. The cynic in in the, in the circle uh, when it comes to technology and sort of what it's doing to us. But I I kind of had this moment where I was having a conversation with my son who's in his freshman year at college right now, and he was telling me that one of the his favorite thing to do with that he does with his friends is they go to the pool hall, and they have a jukebox there. Uh, they, they put this old PC with all these old MP3s and he says old there, it's music from like the nineties. Uh, and it's in this, it's in a jukebox and they, they shoot pool and they listen to music and they talk. And I was like, well, maybe there's some hope <laughs> because like, that's exactly what I did in college. And, and, and it's how I made great friends. And, uh, and it, and it, I, you know, I that's very encouraging to know that these kids now who have devices in their hands all the time can still put them aside and do something like that where they can make these really personal connections.
3: Yeah. I I wonder, you know, it's still, I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm pretty cynical too. And I just, especially for JD and I who have younger kids, I just, it, I have no idea what it's going to be like for my daughter by the time she's your son's age, you know, and what it's going to look like. And when you, when you look at, you know, not to, uh, I feel like this is turning into an episode of Creator Dad actually, funny <laughs> you know? but, but like when you, you know, not that I'm a doctor or anything, but if you look at the statistics around anxiety and all this stuff going on, like, I just can't see that getting any better with, with all the stuff that's happening and, and where things are, or where things are obviously headed. So I don't know. It's good to hear that about your son though, for sure. That's awesome. You
4: know, you know what though? I, I, I can guarantee that their phones were probably either in their hand while they're playing pool or they're sitting on the edge of that pool table and they're texting other friends as they're doing that particular activity. Probably. Where, you know, I, I totally agree. I mean, I did the exact same thing. I used to love hanging out at the pool hall with my buddies and, you know, but that was what we did at that particular moment and we weren't doing anything else. But, you know, today's generation, if they do that, they're doing something else while they're doing it. My daughter's four and like, she at this point will call us out on using our phones. So like if she's watching a cartoon and I sit down on the couch next to her you know and I pick up my phone she'll say daddy put your phone away like she wants me to be in that moment and you know like I'm personally trying to make a conscious effort to do that because I, I really feel like we, we need to
3: yeah because they're definitely going to watch your actions more than listen to your words you know yeah. so if you've got that phone in your hand all the time that's the way that they're going to be and that's the what they're, what they're going to expect you know so I sort of opened with a, a half joke
2: about the riding on the train but I wanted to bring this uh, up um, to you guys, to to both you. I don't know who wants to jump in first, but uh, I I was really intrigued by what Pamela said, and I've heard this so often. It's been my own experience in that uh, she liked the commute in getting her writing done because it gave her a very tight frame to work within. Whereas when she was writing... Um, full-time at home, she said, you know, I could write for 10 minutes, go clean the bathroom, go <laughs> go look around. And, and she didn't feel like she was getting as much done. And, and that, I think that's a big myth for, for folks who are looking to become full-time writers and thinking like, wow, if I just had all day,
3: I would get so many more words in, but I'm not hearing that so much. No. And I, I was, I, I mean, I've said that on this show, I used to say on The Career Author. I mean, that was I feel like there were times when I worked my day job where I got more writing done than I do now, just because I had those constraints built in, and it's a big reason why I'll go work at coffee shops and stuff because it's super easy for me just to get up and oh I'll do the dishes, I'll go fold some laundry, do all that stuff, you know. So, and yeah, I totally, I totally feel that. If if, hell, if we had an Amtrak here in Nashville, I might just take random trips on the Amtrak. (laughs) you know just be like all right babe see you tomorrow i'm gonna go i'm gonna go get some work done on the train but uh because i because i definitely think those constraints whether it's your time your location where you just have nowhere else to i I think those things can definitely help out
4: well i think it just it forces your hand like you you know if you're stuck on that train you know you're gonna write you don't have a choice you you have to do it but when you you know when you're working full-time from home, you know, sitting behind that desk as a, as a writer, you have to force yourself to do that. You have to force yourself to have that time. And, you know, when that, you're, you're staring at a blank screen for five minutes, it's so easy to get up and say, well, I'll just go do this for, for two seconds and, and come 100%. back to it. Yeah. And then as soon as you you start traveling down that road, then you start doing it more and more and more. Like, you have to force yourself to keep your butt in that chair. That kind of reminds me of T.J. Newman, though, where, you know, she wrote Fallen, you know, standing in the back of an airplane working as a flight attendant. Um, and then she had to sit down to her second book behind a desk at her apartment or her house, you know, that a totally different experience for her. Um, but you, you have to force yourself to make that time.
2: Yep. Yep. Totally agree. I love talking to Pamela. She's a writer's writer. You can tell like she's, she's doing the work she's in it. I mean, the, all the work that she does with the podcast and the, at the times, uh, it was, it was a great conversation. So, um, do you guys have any other takeaways or anything you want to bring up from, from the conversation?
4: honestly she seemed like a lot of fun and just it was really refreshing just to hear her you know talk about this book and just you know somebody that exciting about you know excited about publishing
2: yeah she was real and so book content aside go grab it she's a great writer it was a good read and uh, you'll really enjoy it so all right uh next week who do we got jd This should be exciting, too. We've got Bob Spitz on. Um, He's
4: been in the thick of popular culture for as long as I can remember. I mean, this guy, he's a journalist, uh, but he's written books about Ronald Reagan, the Beatles, Bob Dylan. Uh, His latest book is about Led Zeppelin, um, which is, you know, one of my all-time favorite bands. I know you guys like them, too. Um, It releases on uh, November 9th, so he's up next. Bob Spitz.
2: Yeah, that's going to be a good one. Looking forward to it. All right, well, to our listeners, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and grab the free revision masterclass where you can see the storytelling process from beginning to end. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.